Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And school kids are all back at school, of course, and the VCE exams are underway at the moment. And I just want to say good luck to everyone sitting those exams after a super unusual year. Um, but looking into next year, there is a move on in Victoria to help students who fell behind in those two terms of remote learning to make up the lost ground next year. The state government is funding tutors as part of this, um, with $250 million available to employ 4,100 tutors across Victorian schools. Julie Sonneman, Acting Program Director for School Education at the Grattan Institute, has had a look at this policy and joins us on the phone. It's really great to speak with you again, Julie. Thanks so much, Katia. Um, so um, that's a lot of tutors to bring on, and we know out of COVID we can move fast if we need to, and it sounds like we need to. Um, what do you know about this um, proposal to bring tutors in to help uh, students catch up? Yeah, so the plan for 2021 is to have qualified teachers as these tutors. So to bring in teachers who might be casual or retired or students at university who might be studying to be a teacher. Um, And it is a big, um, it's an ambitious plan, so 4,100 tutors. At the moment they've had about 12,000 people apply um, in the sort of early days. So there actually has been quite a lot of people interested, which is great. Um, and the plan is to have um, these, you know, basically this is extra resources for teachers and they can decide how to best use it. So it might be that they might have a small group of students, students in the classroom who need a bit of extra help in a particular subject um, and, and the, the, teacher, the extra teacher comes in and helps there. Or it could be that they might have um, some one-on-one tutoring after school. So there's a lot of flexibility at the school level about how this runs. And so one of the concerns over the past few months has been the equity gap between advantaged and, and disadvantaged students potentially growing um, as a result of the pandemic and at-home learning with, you know, students in um, households where there's kind of difficulties or might be um, culturally and, and, and linguistically diverse, for example, um, might not have the same kind of educational experience as other students. Do we know how this kind of cohort of tutors will go towards um, addressing some of those issues and, and targeting some of those most disadvantaged students? For sure. So the, the plan is targeted uh, at, at students experiencing disadvantage. Um, having said that, it is uh, being spread across all schools, but I, so I believe it's being um, just more heavily focused um, for those schools who might need it more. Um, but look, I think the, the proof will be in the pudding about when we actually see how that works and how much extra support those schools because I, I think that's a really key part of this initiative. We, you know, a lot of kids actually will be fine, you know, catching up next year. They, you know, remote schooling was challenging for a lot of kids, but if you had quite a bit of parent support at home, um, you probably will catch up with time. It's kids who were probably already behind, who already struggle at school for various reasons um, and probably who didn't have parents maybe available to support them as well as they could have during remote schooling. They're the kids that really need this. And um, our work showed that, um, you know, during periods when kids aren't at school, the equity gap widens three times as fast. So even just over, for example, summer holidays at the end of the school year between December and February, that's actually when the equity gap widens the most. 
um, which is frightening. Um, and so that's why you really need to target at disadvantaged students. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose we're familiar with this kind of needs-based approach through the Gonski um, reforms and, and so forth. Does that mean that the most of these tutors will likely be in state schools, Julie, or are they being spread across all the different kinds of schools in the Victorian education um, system? So it is in every school, including the um, independent and Catholic sectors, as well as the government sectors. Um, that has been a you know a decision that was taken by the minister that, that you know from an equity perspective every school can access this scheme. Um, but having said that, there are quite a lot of um, non-government schools that do have disadvantaged populations, and I'd hope that obviously those school those schools get uh, more more access than others. Um, but I do think these are details that are quite important. So. Um, yeah, I'd like to see how it actually happens next year. Yeah, and, and I mean, from what we've seen so far, do you have much of a sense of how quality will be ensured or, or measured in terms of, I guess, that the quality of teaching, but also whether we know that these tutors are actually having the desired effect in sort of catching up student learning? It's a great question. So the plan, as I understand it, and it's all still evolving, is that um, they've really gone with... Uh, the qualifications as the main quality assurance, so only using people who are qualified teachers that so they can. And there is evidence to say that when you use a qualified teacher, that can have um, a bigger effect than a non-qualified teacher, but there's also emerging research that says sometimes paraprofessionals can actually do a really great job, mm. particularly around, as you mentioned before, some of the uh, bilingual the, um, students who speak English as a, as a second language. You can have some great literacy um, sort of experts that may have been you know, tutoring sort of um, very sort of diverse groups for a long period of time that may not have a formal teacher qualification, but be great. So I do think there's a big question here about um, you know, we hope that this pool of retired teachers is quality, um, and not and it should quality checks need to go beyond just checking their qualifications. You'd hope, I know in the UK they've been they have a very similar scheme in place, and they've actually got like a third party that is doing interviews and checking um, just basic you know results sort of standards at university, and and um, and also matching tutors to school. So you know, if a school needs a maths tutor at grade three, making sure that they get access to the best maths tutor at that year level. Um, whereas, um, as I understand it at the moment, the onus really appears to be on schools in the Victorian scheme. So uh, there'll be a registry where schools can go and choose their own tutor. And that's great, and I think that has a lot of flexibility in it, but you also hope that schools just have time to engage with that and also to do the proper screening themselves. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd hope that there's a bit more support put in place for that next year by the time that the scheme actually comes to implementation. Yeah, and I've been wondering too, what if, and I don't know the answer, you might know the answer to this, if the standard or where we want, you know, hope that our students are in their various year levels, if the standard has dropped overall, are these tutors there to help those disadvantaged um, kids or the kids that have fallen behind catch up to where we want them to be or just catch up to where their peers are? Great question. So I think um, this is a really good opportunity to think about our school system and um, look at the existing equity gaps and what is fair and not fair. I think the first, you know, as an immediate response, you need to just at least bring students who are the most vulnerable at least back up to where they would have been compared to their peers. 
um, ideally you bring them up as far as you can. Um, so just to give some sort of like scale around that, um, over the kind of six months of remote schooling in Victoria, it's quite likely that disadvantaged students will have fallen somewhere between two to six months extra behind their advantaged peers. But we know that by year nine, disadvantaged students are about two and a half years behind their advantaged peers. So you're adding an extra two to six months to that in terms of how far they've now fallen behind. But actually, if you look at the bigger gap, it's you know the existing gap is much much bigger. Um, so I think that the 250 million that's been put down is actually very generous, and I'm so happy to see it. And I really hope that this is a chance that we can try and make bigger inroads to the equity gap um, and also to learn what works. It's, you know, a lot of money and attention has gone into trying to, to bring students from disadvantaged backgrounds up at school and it's, and it's really, really hard. And teachers, you know, they are doing a good job a lot of the time and it is hard to improve on what they do regularly. Um, but, but tutoring is known to have benefits um, beyond when it's been tested in really rigorous and so this is a, an opportunity for us to really evaluate when it's working um, and what is the best way of doing this in classes as well in the Victorian context and, um, and also the New South Wales context because, sorry, New South Wales has also invested in this recently. Um, just last week they announced $350 million. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that, sorry, to, just to, to answer your question, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I hope at a minimum that they get brought up to where they would existing, you know, where they would have been otherwise, but also any extra inroads we can make just has to be a big priority. Yeah, it's, it's yet another example of the pandemic kind of forcing changes that might be worth hanging on to in the long term. And, I mean, this is quite a significant investment in addressing that potential kind of, you know, gap in, in student learning, but also the extent to which some students have um, have been impacted by um, by homeschooling over the past few months and, and missing out on, on education. Um, also, I imagine that having sort of smaller class sizes in a tutoring environment is much more conducive to sort of better learning. Do you imagine that some of these measures could actually um, be kept for the longer term? Because there's been so many debates about the school funding and how that should best be delivered over the past years. There's been, you know, very fractious political debates on those sorts of issues. Um, what does the future hold, do you think? I mean, will we just return to back to normal or, or will there be some key things we can take from this to implement into the future? Great question. I, I really hope that there are things we can take from this for the future. I think, um, you know, they say good, you should never let a good, a good crisis go to waste. And I think the, the thing that this has, has really forced governments to do is to look at, well, what does the evidence say works? Um, what can we do now <laughs> to address this? And these questions haven't been brought forward in that way before. And we have, we have tried a lot of complex, long-term sort of changes in schools, which we still need to to look at and, and strive for. But actually, what was a real surprise to me in doing our own research in this area is that, you know, is that uh, small group tuition is expensive, but it, it gets results. And for all of the efforts that we have tried previously, they may have been more cost-effective but if they're really complicated and hard to achieve in schools, you've got to come to a point where you say, what can we feasibly do now to change this? Um, and so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really optimistic about the types of changes that this is now bringing about and what it might mean for, for the future. 
Um, Julie Sonneman's with us. She's Acting Program Director over at the Grattan Institute in the area of school education. And I just want to in, in, indulge my own curiosity for a moment and just take you a little bit to the left of this conversation, Julie. And I've had one of those kids that got like a non-COVID cold and, you know, was really supported to keep her home for like, I think it was three days or something. And with the sniffles until all the symptoms went away. Um, I know someone who had a kid that couldn't get rid of their non-COVID cold for two weeks and their kid was home all that time without any remote learning anymore. What do you think is going to happen into 2021 with absenteeism? Because I think we've gone through so much in Melbourne. We're not going to send our kids to school with a cold. Um, But what if they some kids are more slickly than others and they can't you know get rid of a cold for six weeks what happens then you know what are, what are we looking at do you think with regards to that into 2021 yeah exactly i think that this you know we're going to be living with covid for the next 12 months 24 months even if we get a vaccine there's still going to be these this situation because we're never going to fully get rid of the virus and so we're always going to need to be cautious and this just means that this is going to be hard on students and it's going to be hard on teachers and so for that reason it's you know it's so critical that teachers have got some extra resources that they can draw on to help individual students when this happens um yeah i think i think these issues aren't going to go away soon yeah, and, and, and if we know if um, being out of the classroom leads some kids to fall behind, we don't want that to be kind of an ongoing thing, do we? So, yep, lots to talk about, and I'm sure we'll catch up with you again next year. Thanks so much for being with us again, Julie, and all the best. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, Julie Sonneman there. She's Acting Program Director of School Education at the Grattan Institute, and she's also written on this um, in the conversation if you're curious and want to catch up on more about what, um, what could come from this tutoring program that the Victorian Government has announced. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This week, the so-called Brereton report into alleged war crimes perpetrated by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan will finally be released. The four-year inquiry has examined more than 55 instances of alleged unlawful killings and atrocities committed against Afghan civilians and captured combatants, some of which has been detailed in investigative reporting by the ABC and Nine. Ahead of the report's release, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced the establishment of the Office of Special Investigator to prosecute specific cases through the Australian Federal Police. Rowan Araf is Director and Principal Solicitor at the Australian Centre for International Justice, an organisation that works with victims of human rights abuses and war crimes. And to talk through these issues, she joins us on the line. Rowan, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thank you both for having me on. And so you support the creation of the Office of the Special Investigator to further pursue these issues. Why is this such a significant step in your view? Look, we consider, it, we consider it a really positive development. In fact, it's something that the Australian Centre for International Justice has been saying that Australia needs a specialised unit, an independent specialised unit of, um, that is permanent and well-resourced and trained in order to be able to investigate these really difficult um, investigations. And so we say it's been a missing piece in the puzzle in Australia's ability to, uh, to conduct investigations and prosecutions of atrocity crimes. And I understand we've had um, one before, maybe not a permanent one, but a, but a similar type uh, office in Australia previously. 
That's right. In uh, the late 80s and early 90s, there was a unit called the Specialised Investigations Unit. And that was established as a result of the uh, awareness at the time of Nazi uh, war criminals that were in Australia. So the Australian government at the time set it up to investigate those allegations and try and bring cases for prosecution. But unfortunately, it was disbanded in about 1994. Yeah, and I mean, you know, a lot's happened since then. Obviously, one sort of prominent thing is Australia's involvement in wars in Afghanistan. Why is it that that particular office was disbanded? And and I guess um, as an extension of that, why has it taken so long to have another one set up? I think part of the reason why that office was disbanded was, unfortunately, um, there was uh, not many prosecutions that came out as a result of of that office. And so there was probably, you know, a reluctance uh, from authorities at the time to continue funding such a unit, which is quite unfortunate because we know that in countries abroad where similar units were also established, they became permanent uh, within the, uh, I guess, federal investigative structure or investigative structure for these types of crimes. And I can't imagine that war crimes happen because there's no agency to investigate, but I I suppose I'm going to ask this anyway, you know, could an agency like this help prevent war crimes occurring in the first place, um, Rowan? I think the first um, point I want to make clear is that, you know, at the Australian Federal Police, they really are the agency that should be proactively conducting investigations into these sorts of crimes. But we have for a while said that the AEFP really hasn't had, I guess, the specialised resources or skills or the will to be able to conduct these crime uh, investigations. So I think the establishment of this office, and we understand that it will be acting under the powers of the Australian Federal Police Commissioner, um, is a really welcome and, and, and positive development. We understand that um, it is a separate body, that it will be led uh, by an eminent person with experience in the criminal justice system and in international law, and that, importantly, the office will be staffed uh, with experienced investigators, legal counsel and support personnel. And we know from the press conference as well, Prime Minister Morrison recognised that international cooperation is necessary because, again, as I said earlier, the complexity of these types of uh, investigations. And so what will occur with in this office is that it will investigate the allegations of crimes and possibly receive referrals as a result of what will come about in the Brereton Inquiries report. The office will gather evidence and, where appropriate, refer briefs for consideration of prosecution to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecution. This ordinarily should have happened in a process where the AFP would have been doing something like this. But um, nonetheless, of course, you know, this is the position that we find ourselves now. It is an important step. And what we're going to be calling for and what we have already done uh, already so far is that this office should become permanent mainstay in Australia's justice landscape. Um, it is required, you know, because these there are serious challenges and barriers to investigating and prosecuting the crimes that happened abroad um, that d- don't ordinarily arise in domestic settings. You know, you need uh, creative strategies. You need cooperation, as I said earlier. You need to share expertise. Um, and, yeah, so I think this is a really positive and welcome step. And we're also obviously going to be monitoring the process and interested in how the office works, um, what are the terms of reference for the office, what are the referrals that it gets, 
Um, are there any missing incidents that, you know, we have been looking at that need to be pursued? Those are all the sorts of things that we're obviously going to be monitoring going forward. Yeah, and I mean, some of the reports that have come out by investigative journalists, um, I mean, there was another report on 60 Minutes and in The Age last night from Nick McKenzie. Um, there's mm. been reports on the ABC as well. I mean, the revelations are nothing short of shocking um, in mm. terms of what, what appears to have gone on in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, what can get forgotten sometimes in these instances is the victims of these crimes. And I mean, you know, some of these um, uh, journalistic reports have have put victims at the centre of it. Based on your understanding of how the process kind of might evolve going forward and, and the nature of your work, I suppose, is there are there prospects for victims' families being compensated or having any further kind of path to justice as a result of this um, special uh, investigative office? Well, one of the things that we're going to be really interested in looking at is whether or not the Office of the Special Investigator will have a special focus or a section dedicated to understanding the victims, uh, the needs and the impacts on the victims and their families. So that's something we're really going to be pushing for. Um, And I think it's important part of the process. Of course, these are the people that have been directly affected. And we have seen that some of the victims, at least from the reporting that has occurred, um, some of the victims have been the ones that have been pushing for accountability. There is one case, for example, where tribal elders in a community where a young Afghan man, a father of two, he is said to be about 20 years old, he was unarmed um, and he was chased and killed in a wheat field. And, uh, you know, the, the elders of that community have been pushing for accountability. They lodged complaints with the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission several times. So there clearly is a push for a need by the victims and the families to understand what happened, to get to the truth and to seek some kind of accountability and justice. Um, and so other types of redress, like compensation, obviously is something that the victims would need to speak out for and, and, and demand and request, and it is something that needs to be accounted for in any accountability process moving forward, definitely. And we heard the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, say that he expected the Australian public to be disturbed, you know, even shocked by what we hear. I think it's Thursday when the report is released. What will Mm. making this information public mean for the victims, do you think, um, Rowan? I mean, I think to get to the truth of of what happened, um, you know, genuine investigations into allegations of war crimes are really necessary part of the accountability process. Um, And they can have a powerful deterrent objective. Fundamentally, they're a part of the healing process for the victims and their families. Of course, they need to know what happened. Um, And in addition, we would say it's a fundamental part of the healing process for the Australian people and the defence community and the international community as a whole. I mean, the problem in Afghanistan is that a lot of people thought that they could get away with murder. This is the type of culture of impunity that is pervasive in the conflict in Afghanistan. And so this process is really important to understand what happened, to get to the truth and to um, find avenues to ensure that perpetrators are held account um, and, you know, that the victims are able to seek justice. Rowan Araf is our guest, Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice, and we're talking about the process for investigating alleged war crimes perpetrated by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan, and this comes as we're expecting this week the Brereton um, report to be released as a result of a four-year inquiry. Um, how does Australia kind of stack up in, in um, comparison to other countries in investigating these types of things, Rowan? 
Um, it's specifically in relation to the situation of, of, in Afghanistan. I think it's quite, um, it's leading in that regard. We could say that uh, we see processes in the UK where there's a real reluctance to investigate allegations probably. Um, in the US, of course, what we're seeing is uh, a real, um, you know, uh, punitive impact on processes internationally where there is a move to push for accountability. And by here, I'm talking about the International Criminal Court. Um, you know, the U.S. Trump administration earlier um, this year went on an attack against the International Criminal Court. And a couple of months ago, unfortunately, it imposed targeted sanctions against the lead prosecutor and one of the members of her office, um, for pursuing accountability in the situation of Afghanistan, of course, where, uh, you know, Americans could be uh, held liable um, for allegations of crimes in, in Afghanistan or related to the situation of Afghanistan. So I think we could say that, you know, this process that Australia has undertaken, unfortunately, though it's come with quite a huge delay, nonetheless, is still a really important process. And Australia has shown that it is undertaking its international obligation seriously. And here I want to also, um, you know, uh, put it in the context or the perspective of, of international law, the system of international law. And uh, some of the questions that have been coming out about the process is why, why aren't Australians being investigated at the ICC? And that's because according to the Rome Statute system of international justice, Australia is obligated to undertake these investigations and where appropriate prosecutions of allegations of war crimes. This is how the system is supposed to work. Australia has the primary responsibility. It ratified the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court in 2002. And as a part of that ratification process, we uh, introduced into our criminal code those offences of war crimes, of crimes against humanity, of genocide. So if you look in our criminal code, in effect... Uh, war crimes and these other atrocity crimes are actually crimes against the Commonwealth of Australia, against the people of Australia. And so we have responsibility to undertake those investigations. If it is shown, if it is shown in the future that uh, uh, Australia failed in that regard to undertake genuine investigations or where appropriate prosecutions, that is when Australian nationals can be investigated at the uh, International Criminal Court in The Hague. But again, the fact that we see that happening domestically, this is how the system is supposed to work. Wow, that is such an education. I did not know that that's how things worked. Yeah, that's, that's a really helpful um, background. And I guess um, just lastly, Rowan, it feels like there's a reckoning very much happening at the moment and a willingness on the part of the, the government and also certainly um, General Angus Campbell as well, the Chief of the Defence Force, to kind of get to the bottom of this and, and see progress on um, sort of, you know, getting rid of this culture that, that appears to have existed within mm. particular um, sections of Australia. Australia's uh, soldiers. But, I mean, what prospects are there, do you think, for this um, Office of the Special Investigator to be made permanent and for it to become very much a fixture of, of the way that Australia monitors these things going forward? Look, I think it's going to take a lot of um, efforts from civil society organisations. That's where we believe we are leading on this front. And, um, you know, we've been trying to push for these kinds of mechanisms for a long time. Um, other countries abroad have these specialised units where they are already long established and they've been investiga actively investigating atrocities, not just relevant to their, for to their nationals. They're also looking at foreign nationals. So, for example, in, in Germany, we're seeing Syrian 
um, alleged perpetrators of torture um, from the Assad regime being prosecuted right now in Germany. Um, We're seeing uh, situations uh, across Europe where they're also being investigated. Again, we're not relevant to where their nationals are being prosecuted. So we're saying that Australia needs a national strategy in terms of contributing to the global uh, campaign to end impunity for perpetrators of these atrocity crimes because it is a part of what we would say is Australia's international obligations to do so. Yeah, well, it's been absolutely enlightening having you on the show. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much and uh, looking forward to speaking to you on other occasions on these issues in the future. I really hope so because um, especially when we hear who these staff are running this office, we'd love to know more about them. So thanks so much, Ron. Yeah, so would we. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye-bye. Rowan Araf there, Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice, talking um, all about issues uh, around investigating alleged war crimes perpetrated by Australian soldiers as we await the report of the Brereton Inquiry, which will be delivered... Um, by all accounts, on Thursday this week. Triple R. And we are very pleased to have Barry Jones on the line this morning. Among many other things, Barry is the author of best-selling book Sleepers Wake. He's a former science minister in the Hawke government and lifelong champion of the arts, science and innovation. And now almost four decades since releasing his first book, Barry Jones has released its companion. Um, The book is called What is to be Done? Political Engagement and Saving the Planet. And Barry is on the line to speak with us about it. Um, Welcome and congratulations on the book, Barry. Thank you very much. And so is what is to be done a long time coming? Did you always think that you would return to some of the issues that you covered in Sleepers Wake? Well, yes and no, not to be evasive. But I, over the years, there are very many people who said, oh, you really need to, you really need to um, revise Sleepers Wake to bring it up to date. Uh, and I'd say, well, look, that sounds like a terrific idea, but in fact... Sleepers Wake, while it was very prophetic, and I think often it was pretty, uh, it hit the target quite effectively on a number of uh, areas. I thought the world has changed so dramatically that you couldn't just revise it, you had to reconceptualise it. And I had to think whether I had the energy, the strength, the intellectual resources to be able to take on what was really a massive job. I did, and in fact, I'd have to say I was assisted to some extent by COVID. Uh, The book is one of the beneficiaries, I think, of the lockdown, because it meant that I had to concentrate to a tremendous extent, and I I wasn't distracted by travel or distracted by going to concerts or even distracted by going to see family and friends. I was just thinking, 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 thinking. And, of course, the the essential theme, I mean, I know you want to tease this out, but the essential theme was really this, that back in 1982, I think I'd predicted pretty accurately in some ways that uh, the digital revolution would occur, it would transform society, it would be, uh, it would simply transform our lives. But in some ways, it transformed our lives in a different 
kind of way. I mean, my assumption had been an optimistic one back in 1982 to say if people had access uh, in a kind of handheld device to all the, the riches of the universe, all the knowledge of the universe, that would mean that the quality of political debate would be higher and higher, that we deal with complex issues in a very sophisticated and intelligent way, and that, uh, you know, we would solve many of the world's problems. Wrong. That part I got completely wrong, because you can see that the, the negative side, the downside of the digital revolution was that it meant that uh, there was a sense that Every user was empowered to say, my view is just as important as anyone else. Now, that's a very democratic view. But it means that if you're taking a complex issue like climate change to say, you've got meteorologists and people who are experts in physics and chemistry and so on, uh, who are able to, to make recommendations, determinations, but somebody can then say, well, I take another view. I have no expertise in this area, but my opinion is just as valid anyone else's. And we've, we've definitely I mean, seen that out play out to um, hugely sort of detrimental effects um, in the United States through, you know, the president of Donald Trump and and the, um, the sort of value of truth seems to have been diminished considerably and seems to be up for a whole lot of debate. But I guess reflecting on, on the value of truth and the role of science in decision making as well, I mean, you mentioned the pandemic and it's good to know that something has come out of the pandemic, the, you know, wonderful book of yours that we can all read. But how do you reflect on on sort of the the role of science in decision making around the pandemic, and how that compares to the real stasis in climate change policy that we've experienced in this country for you know so long? Well, I think that where where uh, human health is concerned, um, it's a bit of a special case where we're used to the idea of taking advice. Uh, where a particular problem comes up, whether it's in dentistry or eye health or recovering from a fall, something like that, uh, that a very high proportion of people will seek expert advice. But and, and the result is that you can say, I have a direct responsibility, not only for my own, uh, my own physical welfare, but also my wife, children, mother, father, so on. It's not hard to take that sense of responsibility. But when you say, well, we've got to try and tackle a global problem, a planetary problem, and you say, when's the, when's the impact of climate change going to become irreversible? So once you say, well, it could be, it could be 20 years, it could be earlier, but it might be 20 years, 25 years, then it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, look, why don't we deal with it further down the track? It doesn't have to be right now. The problem is if you're involved in a car accident and you need, it's always about saying, well, look, I think I'll put it off for a year or two. You take action straight away, and we take that for granted. So the result was that when the, uh, after an initial hesitation, Nobody got it absolutely right from the start, but after initial hesitation, 
it meant where COVID was concerned that uh, people did turn for expert advice and say, oh, well, we've got to allocate resources, we've got to act quickly, we don't want a situation where the situation goes out of hand, which it might in a matter of days or weeks. So that you've got, unfortunately, a completely different kind of situation. If you're talking about climate change and, as I've argued, I think, quite strongly in the book, You've got not only climate change, but the implications for climate change on, for example, uh, the refugee problem. The fact that so many areas uh, where you you were able to have, you know, guaranteed rainfall, you were able to have uh, at least enough, um, you know, for, for farming to be, to be viable. Then you have a situation where the climate changes dramatically, where suddenly it isn't possible to support populations. You then get millions of people on the move to say, we can't live here anymore. And the implications politically of the, uh, uh, the, the international uh, immigration, international refugee crisis, the climate refugee has been catastrophic. You can see that it's been an absolutely critical factor in uh, in the United States. But it's also had the effect of changing the way in which we tackle serious problems here in Australia. And who could have thought that, in fact, um, uh, treating people harshly, uh, treating people in a punitive way, treating refugees as if they are criminals has actually proved to be politically very popular. I know, and it's really, I mean, can, can, I, can we talk to you a bit about political imagination, Barry? And I'll remind people, Barry Jones is with us and we're speaking about his new book called What Is To Be Done? And, I mean, your, you know, Sleep Is Awake, your, Sleep Is Wake, your, your first book, you know, took you around the world, led you to being on a stage with Al Gore well before he ran for president and meeting with Bill Gates before most people had heard of Microsoft and the like. And we've also... Um, in, I think, over the, four, the past four decades, seen a drop in trust in politics. And you, you raise in your latest book that, um, you know, parliamentarians or MPs aren't, or the parliament itself has been behind public sentiment on many issues rather than ahead. Um, and it wasn't always like that. What do you think has changed? What has changed in these past decades to, to see our parliament really be a, a couple of steps behind on many issues? A whole number of areas. First of all, the the political parties have really become closed society. They've become secret societies. It's easier to get information about membership of the Freemasons than it is to get information about you know, how many people are in the Liberal Party or in the Labour Party. So that the major political parties have become something like secret societies and they are essentially in the business of retail politics. They're no longer there because they have thought through serious issues, have tackled serious issues and come to serious conclusions and say, now we've got to try and persuade the public as to why we're going to do something important. Every political party is preoccupied with one question. How do we win the next election? The easiest way in order to make sure you win the next election, is not to offend interest groups. 
I mean, if you take an obvious example, um, in Victoria, uh, or indeed in New South Wales, although they may be having a challenge in New South Wales, but if you take the gambling industry, for example, the gambling industry is so powerful, it such, makes such a contribution to revenue. There are so many people employed in and around the gambling industry that neither of the major political parties will tackle anything about reducing problem gambling, although the international comparison suggests Australians spend more of their resources on gambling than any other nation on Earth. And one of the byproducts, incidentally, of COVID was that there's been a dramatic increase in gambling, a dramatic increase in domestic violence, a dramatic increase, I think, in some mental health problems over the period of, uh, of lockdown. But it means that because you have uh, the, the operation of powerful lobbies, it's very hard to, uh, it's very hard to have political parties prepared to open themselves up. And you can see that, for example, at the moment, I was really making the point that, um, uh, you know, you can think of four people in Australia, uh, or with Australian connections, we'll say, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, 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 Tweedy Forrest, uh, Gina Reinhardt, uh, uh, the people who, who exercise a tremendous degree of power, a, a degree of power that's completely out of proportion to their to their numbers. Um, just one last thing: that um, the political people don't realise also that one of the odd things about our parliamentary system is that uh, Australia actually holds the gold medal for the shortness of our sitting periods each year. See, on average, we sit. Um, uh, uh, and this is not counting this year when the figures are very low. Between Federation and last year, the average number of sitting days of the House of Representatives was 67. But if you look at the United States House of Representatives, their average sitting days is about 150. House of Commons in Britain, about 150. Canadian Parliament about the same. The Japanese Parliament about the same. New Zealand, our close neighbour, is higher than ours, 93. We take for granted that political... Really, our, our, our Parliament, in a way, is a bit like the Electoral College in the United States. Uh, with the Electoral College... Its job is to certify the election of the executive and then pay it back. And you'll find governments really find uh, sitting periods in the parliament as a confounded nuisance. They don't want to hang around. They, they say, look, let's get on with the job. We'll rule through, through making public announcements, press conferences and so on, but we don't want serious debate. And so we don't have serious debate. Like in the book, I've indicated many examples of where you haven't had a serious debate. For example, you haven't had a serious debate on defence policy since 1991. And yet, you can see with the issues that are coming up out of uh, uh, Afghanistan, you know, the, the 
the SAS problem and and think that very serious issue, what on earth were we doing in Afghanistan and why? That's an issue that we've gone for 30 years, 30 years without really discussing. Yeah. I mean, you've outlined a whole range of factors that, that point towards the um, the ways in which um, our political system has proved, and, and these are your words, incapable of tackling some of the, the biggest problems yeah. in recent years. And, I mean, you've mentioned corporate influence in politics, um, political terms kind of hindering uh, the extent to which governments can see through kind of long-term reforms potentially because they're basically campaigning the minute they're elected and also um, retail politics and, and the way sort of the tenor of debate, I suppose, suppose, in the way politics is conducted in this country. But as you reflect on your career in politics and and your sort of intimate knowledge of how decision-making sort of happened at that level as as a minister in the Hawke government, do you see any opportunities for current members of parliament, for example, to shake things up at all? Or do you see any kind of um, uh, rays of hope at all in where we're sitting at the moment that suggests that things could change for the better in some respects? I don't think it can. I don't think it can happen internally. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's the the caves have really got to be have got to be broken up. And the only way in which that can happen, or essentially, is that uh, is a much higher level of citizen involvement. I mean, my calculation is this: that we've got about fifteen million votes in Australia at the moment, and you see. Because of compulsory voting and or compulsory registration, compulsory voting, compulsory and public funding for election campaigns, all of which I agree with in theory, but I can see there's a downside. Um, with those areas, it means people turn up to vote with pegs on their noses. We have a higher turnout. But people then say, well, I voted. Thank God I won't have to do it again for another you know, until the next state election or the next federal election, because we are, I don't want to have anything to do with the process. And once you do that, and people say, I don't want anything to do with the process, it means you leave it to the insiders who say, look, I want to make sure my faction's a dominant faction. I want to make sure that when patronage is being determined, you know, I'm... I'm going to be a beneficiary of it. So the result is that um, um, unless you had that, that, that so you've got about 30,000 people who are more or less activists in the political parties right across the board. That's 0.2% of the total voting population. And yet it's as if people say, well, look, we're outnumbered. There's only 15 million of us and there's 30,000 of them. What can we do? And the result is that the only way in which the situation could change would be if you had a very significant number of, of informed citizens who said, we are determined to break the political model and to challenge major political parties, whichever party they are, to say, look, they're there's a million of us. If you had a million out of, out of um, uh, 15 million, not a very high proportion, if you had a million, that would be tremendously important. It's odd if you go back, and this sounds like going back to the Ice Age, but in the period of, um, 
in the period when Menzies was around, at the beginning of the, when he revived the, the Liberal Party, membership of political parties was actually very high, far higher than it is now. But now people live interact, not so much by having face-to-face -face interaction, they live via a screen. They form their judgments by gazing at the screen. They don't engage with other people face-to-face -face and share time with them and share a cup of coffee with them. It's all mediated through electronically. You know, that, Barry, it makes me think straight away of, um, I mean, you're a huge um, um, attender of, of arts, a pa patron of the arts and so forth, and a champion of the arts. And for some reason, that just made me think of that straight away, talking about this face-to-face -face thing. It's something that we haven't been able to do face-to-face -face this year no, very much. No. And you, you said right at the, the top of this conversation that in, in some ways that's given you more time to do other things like write your book. Um, but what's your sense of, of the art? as we head to, to the summer and into 2021, are you, yeah, what, what's your feeling? I mean, have you been able to get to a concert face-to-face -face yet or when are you planning on doing that sort of thing? Well, the, the, the sooner the better. I can't wait. We've been, we've been very lucky that we've actually had, uh, uh, we, we've actually had personal contact with individual musicians who've actually played for us at home, which has been, which has been wonderful. Not a concert. I mean, just just my wife and I plus the performer. It was a rather strange kind of uh, situation, but COVID really normal performance. <laughs> you see, but part of the problem too, you see, is that feeling that um, um, that the the see, there's been very little emphasis on creativity, and it's curious about when you think of all the spending uh, about. Um, you know, that's come out of the reaction to COVID. You can see that anything relating to creativity is right down on the pecking order. Now, I'm particularly disturbed about the fact that the arts have been really hung out to dry because, you see, there'd be a view that say, well, what, what's the value of the arts? It's, it's not as if they're doing something practical like being a plumber or being a carpenter. But in fact, you say, no, no, all they're doing is transforming people's lives, transforming people's heads, making them think about the world in a different kind of way. And I think the reaction of the government is to say, well, what's the point of that? Uh, and similarly, uh, and, uh, similarly, it's very striking. You see that uh, if you look at what's happening with funding of the universities, um, um, They've singled out, you know, I think um, a quite appalling way, they've singled out the humanities. Uh, they've made the humanities far harder to get into. There's a very discriminatory pricing mechanism put in because the implication of what they're saying is to say, what's the point of working out what human beings are all about? The nature of the humanities is that you understand what makes human beings tick. And I think the government reactions say, who cares about that? Who really wants to understand the meaning of truth? Who really wants to understand the meaning of life? How, how do you... Who on earth takes an interest in ethics? Who on, interest, on earth takes an interest in longer-term planetary issues? 
Who on earth wants human beings to fully to reach their full potential? And that it's curious, it's appalling to me that um, the, the emphasis on education is to say, well, um, our our emphasis is really on satisfying the labour market, the economy for the immediate future. Mm. You think, well, with younger people, they're going to be living well on into the 22nd century. So, look, too bad. Who cares about that? Speaking with Barry Jones about his brand new book, What is to be Done, a companion of sorts to um, his seminal work, Sleepers Wake. And, I mean, just sort of lastly, Barry, I mean, you've spoken about the whole range of ways, kind of, um, you know, greater citizen involvement in politics and, and putting pressure on elected representatives could move towards a, sort of a better and and more dynamic kind of decision-making process and, and hopefully go some way towards addressing some of these many issues that you've outlined in your book that very much sort of need addressing in the here and now. But just kind of briefly, can we talk about opposition for a moment? Because, um, I mean, the coalition has been in government for some time and they are the ones that have put through some of these changes to to university funding and the like and at the federal level have been responsible for the decisions um, to sort of navigate us through the pandemic. What's your sense of where the Federal Labor Party sits at the moment, I guess, in light of some of the most recent tensions that have again resurfaced around climate and, and the future of um, energy transition in this country? I think the Labor Party is in a very poor position at the moment because it's panicky. I mean, I'd have to make an exception in the case of state governments. I think a number of the state governments have done well. I think, despite you know some criticism of uh, Dan Andrews, I think um, uh, the line that he took, line that Anastasia Palaszczuk took in in uh, in Queensland, the line that uh, um, Mark McGowan has taken in Western Australia, I think they've they've done pretty well. But federally. Um, you can see that um, the Labor Party is petrified. See, having taken what I think was quite a courageous stand, but not completely thought through, but taking a courageous stand on some issues like taxation um, uh, in the 2019 election, now Labor's backpedalling. So that the whole idea say, of the moral basis of taxation is simply gone. And the Labor Party's all over the joint on the climate change issue. It's it's tragic. And it means that the quality of debate that we get politically is simply appalling. And I, I mean, my view is simply that, um, uh, you know, that I said somewhere, and I really feel quite bitter about this, to say it might be time that we renamed the parties, that we renamed the Liberal Party the Self-Interest Party, renamed the National Party the Coal Party, and renamed the Labor Party as the Tepid Party, because it doesn't <laughs> take a strong view on anything. Tepid is one of those words, isn't it? Um, we're out of time, Barry, but I wonder, uh, we we sort of waited 40, 40 years for this companion to Sleepers Wake. Yes, and, yes. Um, uh, is there another book in you? Well, look, I... <laughs> It depends. I mean, there's been a tremendous reaction already, and uh, but I can see that in a way, I mean, we we haven't even we haven't even used the C word. We haven't talked about about Trump and the real challenge. Say, you've got two politically in the United States and in many other countries, you've got these now two alternative models: the the model of liberal democracy 
and the model of authoritarian democracy. And although I'm very relieved to see Biden being elected, the reality is that in the United States, about 48% voted for the authoritarian model. Uh, that's, that is enough to make your blood run cold. If you think of how badly Trump, say, handled the COVID thing, um, and that must have been responsible for at least a couple of percentage loss, but Trump could have come very close to winning again with what is essentially an authoritarian in which you, you absolutely despise the opposition and if you don't regard an alternative point of view as being even legitimate. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That, that can fill another book easily, I yeah, think. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, thank you so much, um, Barry, and all the best with it. Um, what is to be done? Political engagement and saving the planet is the title of Barry Jones's book, uh, and it's out through Scribe. And uh, we look forward to having you again on Triple R one time. I hope so. That'd be good. Terrific. And thank see you, you very see, much. see you at a concert one day soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.